0: The cat all of our lives, gentlemen, we hear the words be a man or man up, and and mo- for most of us, we spend the re- all of our lives kind of going, well, I don't really know what that means. To, I don't really understand what that means to be a man. Now, if someone accuses us of not being a man, now those are fighting words, right? And so we, we, we know we don't want to do that. We may not necessarily know what it means to be a man, but we know we want to be one. Uh, the, there's one passage of scripture, and this is a passage of scripture that we're going to look at tonight, and uh, you ri- write this down. I meant to put it on the notes. I I failed to do that. It's 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 2. And we're going to look at just four verses in this passage uh, tonight. So 1 Kings chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, I hope you do, uh, go ahead and look up 1 Kings chapter 2. This is that, this is the the first passage we're going to look at. uh, And we're going to, tonight, we're going to look at what it means to be a man of God. What is, what does this, what does this mean to be a man? Okay. Now, we find that King David is at the very end of his life. And King David is now at that point, he's on his deathbed and he has the opportunity to share with his son those final thoughts, those final instructions. For every one of us, we think, put us in that situation. What if if we knew that we were very close to passing away and that we had the opportunity to, to, to impart on our son, or our daughters, but impart on our children, those final words. This past Monday, I went down to the Houston Medical Center to the hospice uh, down there, and one of uh, my closest friends is in the final stages of cancer. Uh, Steve Seelig has been on our staff, on our executive staff, uh, for years and years, and has become a close, dear friend, and he is... Uh, battled glioblastoma, brain cancer, for the last five years, and um, and and actually, he's at the very end. He's he's done. There's nothing else they can do, and they're just making him comfortable. And so, I talked to Benita, his wife, and and asked if I could come down. She said, "Sure." And so Monday, I went down and uh, was able to uh, get down on my knees and grab Steve's hand and get close to his face, and it really was a sweet time in the fact, the fact that I had that opportunity with one of my closest friends to say my goodbyes and to be able to talk to him and him to be able to talk to me, and it was, it was a great experience. Well, David, in this passage of Scripture, finds himself on his deathbed, and he, has, he says, son, there's something I need to tell you. There's something I need to pass on to you. Um, and so we get to this passage of scripture, first Kings chapter two, and it's, I'm just going to read the first verse as David's time drew, as David's time to die grew near, he charged Solomon, his son saying, I am going the way of all the earth. By the way, every one of us, every one of us has an appointment. None of us, none of us are beyond that. None of us are beyond that time. In fact, uh, tomorrow we will. Uh, for for many of you, we're we're burying one of our very dear friends, Tom Delago, who uh, passed away on a motorcycle accident on Saturday. Every one of us has a time that will be our time, and they'll go they'll go out to the seminary, cemetery and they'll chisel in that final date for every one of us. And that's what David is saying here. He says, "I am going the way of all the earth. All the earth is going to pass away," and then he says to his son, "Be strong, therefore, and show yourself." A man, he says. Listen, one of the translations: "Be strong and be a man." I love that. Then, in the next few verses, he's going to delineate what that means. Now, the the, it, the problem is that we are so conditioned with our media and with our culture and with our uh, with our current society. the our Our world tries to tell us what manhood is, and not all the things they tell us is bad. Actually, no, no, not everything is is inaccurate. But the problem is, if if you look at what the world tells us it means to be a man, it falls dreadfully short of what the Bible and what God tells us it means to be a man. So our first premise is that uh, the, the very first thing that we're going to agree upon is the greatest man who ever walked the planet was our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, can, we, can, we, can we agree upon that one? That's, 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 that's kind of our standard, right? And so we're going to look and see what the world says tonight that defines a man. And then we're going to compare that to what God says in God's word about what it means to be a man. And we're going to compare that to the very life of Jesus. Now, next week, I promise you, you do not want to miss next week. Next, next, uh, ne- next Wednesday, Patrick Thurman will be our teacher uh, next week, and we're going we're gonna to look at the very life of Jesus, a, a walk with Christ to the cross, and we're going to look uh, very closely at uh, Jesus' life and his, and his character. But with this premise that Jesus is the greatest man who ever lived, let's look first at eight characteristics or eight things that the world tells us, and these are on your notes, eight things that the world tells us it means, it means that defines a man. Okay, the first one, and by the way, let me again, let me reiterate, not all of these, are some of these are not okay, I mean, they're not, not good, but not all these things are bad. Not all these things are bad in and of themselves. But the problem is if that's how we define ourselves, As a man, we've fallen short of what God tells us it means to be a man. So the first one is, the world defines a man as the rugged man. Fill in that first blank, the rugged man. This is the guy who hunts and fishes and camps and has guns and looks macho. Uh, In fact, it's probably a guy that may look somewhat like this. Okay? It's a nice-looking rugged man there, right? Uh, now again, is there anything wrong with a man being rugged? And I mean, we're by nature, we're hunters and gatherers, right? Is there, is there anything, by the way, um, one of the, one of the greatest men that I personally know is Brendan Murphy. And did you know, did you know he's a, did you know he's a fisherman? And recently we caught, uh, we took a picture of him out uh, fishing. I want you to see this picture. Did you see? That? Yeah. Who that. we, you need to do some manscaping there, buddy. That's Uh, it's just a candle candid picture there, Brennan. He, he didn't even bother cooking that fish. He's just going to eat it like it is. Not long ago, a a few years ago, I was at a conference and I was uh, listening to one of the leading theologians of our time. In fact, he's a president of a seminary. He was talking about America and how, you know, kind of the whole, uh, what do we need to do to, to you know, get America back to God? And he said this statement. He said, well, I'll tell you, one of the things I know for sure is that what every, what every boy in America needs is a dog and a gun. You know, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I mean, I have, a, I have a dog and I have a gun. In fact, I have several guns. I mean, I, there's nothing wrong with having dogs and having guns. But I don't know that that's the solution to the, all the problems of America that we give all of our sons, dogs, and guns. It sounds a little dangerous, uh, actually, uh, to me. That's not necessarily. And again, there's nothing wrong with the rugged man. But if that's our definition, if that's how we try to live up to then we're going to fall woefully short of what the Bible says. Uh, in fact, Jesus said of himself that he was gentle and humble of heart. Now, I'm not suggesting that we raise up sissy, panty-waist boys. That's not what I'm saying. Our boys ought to act like boys and act like men. That's, that, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that if that's, if that's our vision of what a man is, I think we fall short. The second definition that the world tries to shove down our throats is that the real man is the man with power and authority. Those are the next two blanks, fill them in, power and authority. And of course, the one man we think of that kind of fits this same mindset would be the Donald. Now, whether you like him or not, which most of us don't, whether you agree with him or not, he does fit the world's the world's definition of the power and authority man these are those men that i mean they they lead by bully leadership they take no prisoners they intimidate they uh, they they they're just they're mean spirited these are those guys, these are those guys that that uh, sometimes in the world they you look at those and you go well gosh you know they they, they must be there must be a great leader they must be a great man no they just they just know how to you know these, these kind of guys know how to be a bully and again these are the heads of corporations the guys that you you know every, they walk in the room and everyone's afraid of and again, there's there's nothing wrong with people in authority. In fact, you know, we certainly want men of God who are heads of state and heads of corporations and uh, and in places of government. I mean, my goodness, if we find one, we better vote them in, and we better put them in. We want them there. But the kind of leadership that this is talking about, that that power and authority, is that is that kind of uh, uh, that kind of obnoxious. In your face, I'm not going to listen to you. That kind of authority, and it really flies in the face of what Christ taught us about leadership. 101 from the Gospels, uh, starting in the uh, starting in the Beatitudes when Jesus uh, taught his uh, disciples. But uh, where Jesus said uh, said of himself, he said, "I did not come. I did." Jesus said of himself, "I did not come to be served." Jesus said, "I came to serve." Paul said, he said, Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. In fact, uh, as his disciples were, as they were wrapping up, you know, Jesus' three years of discipleship with them, and all, all of a sudden, one day, he overheard them talking about who's gonna be greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus said, guys, listen, to be the greatest, you must be what? The servant of all. Nothing wrong with authority, Nothing wrong with positions of power. And in my goodness, we, 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 when we find someone like that, we want to support them. But listen, if that is our definition of a man, again, we fall short of what God says to us. Listen to this phrase, the world did, does not esteem what our Lord Jesus Christ embodied in his manhood. The world does not esteem what our Lord Jesus Christ embodied in his manhood. Third definition is the world defines the real man as the tough guy, the tough guy. And it may look something like this. Listen, we love a fighter, don't we? We love, we love a fighter. We like, we like Rambo Rambo. We like Clint Eastwood. We like uh, Steven Seagal. We like uh, we like uh, 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 Jack Reacher. We like Vince. We love we love these guys, right? That that take names and kick. You know what? You know they they're really they're really tough guys. You know, and again, I'm saying there's not there's not always a bad thing. In fact, in our adult Bible study right now, we're in the Book of Matthew. We're in the latter latter parts of the Book of Matthew, and we're studying the last week of Jesus' life right now. And so we looked at his triumphal entry a couple of weeks ago, and then last week we looked at one of the the parables as as Jesus is being tested before he he goes to uh, to trial and is ultimately executed. And what happens? Do you remember what happens? It's, It's a passage we skipped over in Bible study, but do you remember what happens in that same time period? Jesus goes one day to the temple, and he walks in, and he's going, what? in the world are you doing? You have desecrated God's house. And let me tell you something. He was hacked off. He didn't just say, okay, now guys, I really wish you wouldn't do this. No, 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 no. He was so angry. He flipped over the tables. He grabbed the whip. I mean, he is hacked off. There are times, guys, we have to be the tough guy. As, as the leader of our staff, there's, there's, on this campus, There are times. there are times, guys, I have to be the tough guy. But listen, if that is our character, and if if that's how we define ourselves as a man, again, we don't fall, we don't measure up to what scripture says a man is supposed to be. In fact, Jesus said, uh, he he said uh, to his disciples, he said, blessed are the meek. Not weak, I didn't say weak. He said, blessed are the meek. Why? For they will inherit kingdom of God he also said you know if someone slaps you on the face you don't slap them back you turn the other cheek the fourth definition of a man is a man with a man with physical strength that's the next line put in put in the word strength there and we might think of someone like this the Arnold oh yeah all of us love him and hate him at the same time don't we Right, and again, nothing wrong with strength. All of us, all of us. I mean, I see some of you guys. Man, you go, you guys are really, you know, uh, well put together. All of us ought to work on our uh, on our physical fitness, and all of us ought to live healthy lives. That's not the issue. But if that is what you define manhood as. Listen, again, we fall short of what God tells us. In fact, if you go, if you go to one of the greatest, uh, one of the most popular characters of the entire Bible, the man named Samson, we looked at him a few weeks ago in, in Bible study, listen, this was the strongest man who ever lived, but yet he was the most miserable man that ever lived. Yes, he, in, in the Bible and in actually all of literature, he was the strongest man ever written about, but he lived a disastrous moral failure of a life he was a sorry man he was anything but the model man for us to put our uh, example as jesus uh, jesus uh, in second corinthians chapter 13 it says that jesus was crucified in weakness yet he lives in God's power. Jesus said, my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, I delight in weakness, for when I am weak, then I am strong. A fifth definition that the world gives us is is the man who doesn't cry. That's the next blank that you fill in there, the man who doesn't cry. And we may think of someone like the Duke. Oh, yeah. You know, you know we, never saw, we never saw him cry, right? We never saw him cry. Every one of us, gentlemen, you can complete this phrase. Big boys, big boys don't cry. We've, we, in fact, we've probably said that to our sons, right? We said, oh, big, oh, come on, rub some dirt on it. Big boys don't cry, right? But listen. You look in the life of Jesus, and three times, three times in the life of Jesus, we see where Jesus, it says Jesus wept. That's not just where he kind of you know, had a little, that, That's the kind of grief that where you, where you, where you heave in your, in your grieving and your sadness and your sorrow. Now, I'm not saying we need to sit around and cry and sing kumbaya. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, listen, all of us have been conditioned by the world that as men we don't show our emotion. Yet that's exactly not what we find in the life of Christ. My dad, I'll talk about him a little bit more later on, but my dad, my dad was a man's man. He was a strong, godly, you know, tough man's man. But he also was a man who regularly would cry over his children's broken heart and things that were wrong in the world and things that hurt him in the church. He was a man who wasn't afraid to say, you know what? This makes me incredibly sad because it breaks the heart of God. Um, the next definition that the world tries to tell us that defines a man is the wealthy man, the wealthy man. Maybe the wealthiest man on the planet right now is Bill Gates, right? Because all of our lives, listen, men, for, for everyone, listen closely because someone here needs to hear this. All of us, at times, want to believe the lie of the world that our paycheck equals our worth. Because we live in a society that says, listen, he who has the gold makes the rules. He who dies with the most toys wins. He who has the greatest salary must be the greatest man. And again, there's nothing wrong with wealth. Listen, I want you to know as a pastor, I pray for you. That you that everything you do is successful I, I we, we delight when we see men in our church and women in our church who are successful in their businesses we love it when we see when we see someone in our church that becomes a zillionaire we love that we, we, we're, we're we're proud of you we pray for you there are men in my class that I pray for every week that their businesses will succeed you know why I pray that because those are the men who understand that what they receive from God through their salary is actually a way of blessing others. They receive a blessing in order to be a blessing. They have honored God with their finances. They know what it means to be a a healthy, faithful giver. Listen, we pray for you. God's kingdom needs rich men and women. There's nothing wrong with wealth. But when we compare ourselves and we measure ourselves up to what our pay stub says, listen, for many of us, we're gonna come woefully inadequate, and there are going to be times in all of our lives where our paycheck, either high or low, doesn't match really who we are worthwise as a man. Jesus had nothing. Uh, in fact, it says that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. Jesus didn't have a second home. He didn't have a lake house, he didn't have a ranch, He didn't have a vacation home in Vale. In fact, to our, to our best knowledge, when Jesus died, he died homeless, and everything he owned was gambled away with a roll of a dice at the foot of the cross. Jesus, by no means, according to the world, was a wealthy man. But yet, he's the king of kings. The world also defines man, the, the, the real man as the handsome man, the handsome man. That's the next blank to be filled in. And maybe it might be someone like this. I don't know. Uh, now, again, there's nothing wrong with good looks. I mean, you know, I mean, I, it's a curse sometimes for some of us uh, because we're so good looking. I mean, that, that's just the way that goes. By the way, Ryan Gosling, uh, how, how many of you, I just, this is just a little a side note, uh, how many of you men took your wives to go see La La Land? Seriously, you're a good husband, you're a good husband, you're a good husband, you're a good husband. The rest of you will have another lesson. Number 8 will be for you on taking your wives to see a good movie. That's a that one was a good one. I went to I went to go see it. Again, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with, with good looks, but here, here's the deal. Hollywood has taught us that only good-looking people are successful people. Hollywood and our 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 culture has equated good looks with worth and popularity. You know, what's interesting about that is, first off, how do you find handsome? And for all of us, even Ryan Gosling, eventually, you know, he won't be in his 30s anymore, right? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Eventually, you know, things will begin to sag and, you know, grow and hair will come out of places that you didn't intend for it to grow out of. It'll even happen there because cause, cause good looks are fading. They're fading. I mean, unless you're, unless you're Spike Carlin. I mean, the older he gets, I'm telling you, he's, he is, nah, he's, a, he's a handsome guy. Uh, listen to this, uh, Isaiah 53, and talking about the Messiah. Now, this is a prophetic scripture in the Old Testament talking about the Messiah, Jesus prophetic uh, scripture, Isaiah 53, he says, he had no beauty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was so ordinary looking that if you'll recall in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before, on the night that Jesus was arrested, that Judas had to kiss Jesus in order to identify him because he looked so normal. Not saying Jesus was not handsome, but he wasn't this super attractive superstar that everyone went, oh, 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 that's the one, because beauty fades, is what God's word tells us. Number eight, the world defines, and this is the one where we do take exception to the world defines a true man as one, a man of sexual conquest. Sexual conquest. Maybe some, we think of someone like, isn't he the most miserable person you've ever seen? I mean, seriously, he's probably, you know, sexual conquest. See, because from the very beginning for us as men, there's this double standard that we have, men, young men, and women. And it just drives me crazy, this double standard. For, for, for young men, it's, it's, it's so interesting that for a young man from adolescence on, we are willing to lie about sexual conquests and strive to early lose our virginity. And if you find a young man that in his 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, in those years and they're, they're having multiple sexual partners, we, uh, you, know, even in, you know, even godly men tend kind to of, kind of look and go, well, you know, he's just being a man, right? He's just, you know, he's just being a man. But yet, if you have a girl that's that same age and they are sexually promiscuous, we call them a whore. This double standard, even, even within godly people. And listen, you gotta remember that God's word is crystal clear from Genesis all the way through Revelation, that any kind of sex outside of the covenant of marriage is called fornication. And Jesus said of fornication that fornication is an abomination to the Lord. And men, listen to me, listen to me. This is a little side note, but you've got to listen to me. As Christian men, we must teach our sons that it's not only okay, but it is God's will for them to stay sexually pure until they get married. Even if we failed in that area. Because a lot of men don't want to talk to their sons about sexual purity because they were miserable failures in that but listen even if we were even if we were a failure we must tell our sons it's okay and it's God's will for you listen i do I do a lot of weddings i I, I never thought that at this point in my ministry that would be what I would do i do I do a lot of weddings and here's one thing that I know from doing weddings from 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 all the premarriage counseling and all the couples that I've married, and it also is backed up by secular uh, therapists that will tell you this. If I have a couple that has saved their self from marriage, they have been sexually pure, not only with each other, but with all, with all other partners. They're sexually pure. There is an exponentially higher rate of success in their marriage. But a couple that has been sexually active either together or with other, other couples prior to marriage they're more apt to compromise after they get married. Because any kind of sexual activity outside of God's design of the covenant of marriage is an abomination to our Lord God. And it's a sin not only against, against Christ, but it says it's a sin against our own body. We must, men, we must, we must teach our sons and our daughters that God's will for them is sexual purity, regardless of what the world tries to shove down our throats. We must. Now, why in the world would I spend so much time on these eight characteristics? Why would I do that? Why would I do that? Because in the life of David, David was all of these. He had been there he had done that. He had had his highs and he had had his, had his lows. He had experienced every one of these and every one of these left him empty and incomplete. The Bible says that David was a rugged man. He lived on the, on the hillside. It tells us that he, he killed wild animals with his bare hands. He ruled with power and great authority. He was, in fact, he was a leader of all leaders. He was a tough guy. Remember, he killed the nine-foot giant Goliath. He had great strength. The only time in in all of the biblical records that we know that David cried is, is at the loss of his son when his son passed away. He was wealthy. He was Bill Gates, big time, wealthy in his time. The wealthiest man perhaps to have ever lived. He was a handsome man. The Bible says he was handsome and rugged and ruddy. I don't know what ruddy means, but apparently it's handsome. He was, he was a handsome guy. And of course, he was a man of sexual conquest. He had concubines and wives. And of course, we all know that he had one of the most miserable moral failures lived out for all of us that we find when he had sexual relationships with Bathsheba and then plotted to have her husband killed. Here was a man who had done all of these things, and then at the end of his life, what does he do? He goes, listen, Solomon, listen, be strong and be a man, and I'm gonna tell you how to be a man and what that looks like. So there are four things, and we're gonna hit these fast, but they're very, they're very important. He says, he says to his son Solomon, Sol- listen, I've been there, and I've done that. I've, got, I've done all those things. Now let me tell you what it really means to be a man. It says, as David's time to die grew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. So number one, fill in the blank. A real man does not waver on issues of morality and righteousness. Listen, men, listen to me. A real man, a real man does not waver on issues of morality or righteousness. Verse two, he says, be strong. Now, when he says be strong there, David mentioned strength. He says be strong, but he's not talking about physical strength, though David had physical strength. He's not talking about physical strength. To, to understand what he means by that, let's look at the entire book. David wrote, as you recall, almost the entire book of Psalm. And, and in the book of Psalm, six times he says this, the Lord is my strength. And the word strength there that he use, uses is, is the word for anchor or foundation. He says, The Lord is my foundation. The Lord is my anchor. He says, Listen, Solomon, be strong. Hang on to the anchor. He says, Listen, when facing fear, the Lord is my strength. When facing sexual temptation, The Lord is my strength. When facing financial crisis, the Lord is my strength. When facing the stress of marriage, the Lord is my strength. When facing the challenges of raising kids, the Lord is my strength. When facing the pressures at work, the Lord is my strength. Gentlemen, I submit to you, listen, no matter what you do, where you work, where you do it at, listen, the Lord is our strength. He's our anchor. He's the one we hold on to. He's the one we place our foundation on. He is our strength. It's, it's that picture, if you've ever been down to the ship channel and seen a cruise ship or some of the, one of those big ships, and they come in, and, and they've got these big ships, but they, they, on the side, they've got these great big anchors that are about the size of this room, and you go, my goodness, why does that anchor have to be so big? The anchor has to be, has to be huge in order to that, make that which is movable unmovable. The world around us is going to change and move all around, but listen, we need to be anchored to the one that won't move. We need to be anchored to the immovable Savior. David may have wavered in fear and moral choices and inconsistency, but but, but in the Psalms, he recognizes that the Lord was his un, in, unmovable anchor because the Lord was his strength. We have to hold on to the strength. Now, that doesn't mean we won't sin. That doesn't mean we won't fail. But what that does mean is that when we do sin and when we do fail, and we all do, we confess that sin, we turn quickly back to our Savior, and we forget the past, and we move on. The key here, gentlemen, to the Lord being our strength, this is the word, the key word is consistency. Consistency. I want you to think for just a second about a man in your life that you that you admire the most. One, maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was... Your dad, maybe, who, who was that? Who was that in your mind that you admire the most? I guarantee you there was some element of consistency in that person's life that drew you to them. For me, it was my dad. My dad, who passed away uh, 10 years ago. I miss him. I, I miss him terribly. But my dad was that picture of consistency. He was a blue-collar worker, high school graduate hard, a small business owner owned a little uh, owned a little service station a little family business it was a great it was a great life you know we didn't make a whole lot of money but my dad was my dad was a, a, a great worker but he was the model of consistency one day I will never forget. I worked for him at that service station. In fact, I worked for him in the, in the like 79, 80, 81. If you remember, during that time, that was when in one of the the gas crises crises of our nation. That's when they were rationing gas. You remember? Any of you guys remember when they were rationing gas? And so a service station, and as you can imagine, that was that was our livelihood. They could only sell so many gallons of gas a day, and then they had to shut off the pumps. That was also, by the way, when gas went. Over a dollar a gallon, which prior to that, most of my life it had been twenty nine cents a gallon. Yeah, I know some of you go, yeah, that never happened. Oh, it was, it was. And so, gas, ga- guys, gas was our livelihood. Gas is how we, gas is how we put bread on the table. So it was a tough time in his life. And one Saturday. As we're as we're closing up, we're supposed to close at six. At five thirty, he's balancing the books and he's running the tape. And you know, he's got the calculator. I mean, the, the adding machine, and he's running the tape from the from the uh, get, uh, the the cash register, and he's looking at the charge slips. And I mean, he's he's so frustrated. And he he just I mean, it's just not working out. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what happened? Did, uh, maybe someone stole from us or whatever. You know. I and mean, he just finally goes, oh oh no, oh no. He said, we're $3 over, and it looks like we've charged Mrs. So-and-so $3 that we should, we should not have charged. $3. I mean, seriously, $3. And I see my dad go over the cash register. He gets $3, and he heads outside and says, I'll be back in just a minute, son. And he drives all the way across town and knocks on that lady's door, and he says, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I think we overcharged you. Here's your $3 back. $3. Let me tell you something, guys. That consistency impacted my life more than $3 could have ever bought because I saw a man who was committed to moral integrity. Consistency is it. It's the man who is willing to stand alone. The man is willing to stand up. So Solomon, when David says to Solomon, be strong, he's saying, hold on to the immovable anchor and do not waver. The second thing that we would say that God's word says, uh, teaches us about being a real man, a real man walks with God, walks with God. That's the, next, that's the next blank. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, David says to Solomon, to walk in his ways. The first phrase we find there is keep the charge. Keep the charge. What does that mean? It means, David, I mean, it means Solomon, keep your commitments. Be a man of your word. Again, I go back to my dad. He wasn't a perfect man by any stretch of the means. I don't want you to think, you know, you know. Sometimes when someone passes away, they kind of they kind of gain sainthood in your mind. No, my dad was just a regular guy, and they had ups and downs. And I mean, I saw all of that. But listen, my dad was the kind of man that his handshake was his word. If he looked at you and he shook your hand and you made an agreement, that, that was better than anything, any other contract you could have ever made because my dad was a man of his word. And in here, he's saying, he's saying, Solomon, Solomon, remember your charge. Remember your commitment. You made a commitment here. Stick with it. Be a man and man up to the commitments that you've made. Solomon, keep charge. Keep charge of the Lord your God to walk in his word. Ways. I love this. I love this picture of walk. Okay, go back with me all the way to, the, to Genesis chapter 2, to the very first man that God ever created, Adam. And do you remember that one passage in this scripture? I love, I love this picture. In Genesis 2, it says that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. He walked with God in the cool of the day, meaning in the, in the morning time. He walked with God. Here's the first man, and literally, this was, of course, before sin entered into the world, literally, God walked with Adam side by side. It's that same picture that, that because, we have, because we now have the Holy Spirit, we can walk with God side by side throughout our day. Let me kind of give you an example of what that, what that kind of looks like. Like The, 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 the New Testament says, pray without ceasing. What does that look like for us men? All right, let's just pretend that, or let's just say that you and I are gonna go spend an afternoon together and go play golf. I like to play golf. I'm not any good at it, but I I like to play golf. Usually takes about four hours. Sometimes it takes me about five hours because I hit the ball a few more times than most do, but that's all right. So we arrive at the golf course. We get our golf clubs out. We put them on the golf cart and we take off for for our uh, round of golf. And in that four hours, we're gonna carry on we're going to carry on this dialogue that goes on for four hours. Now, as men, sometimes we will just ride together and we don't have to talk, right? Now, ladies, they've got to fill up. The, they've got to fill up all the spots. You know, he said this. She said this. She said this, he said. Oh no, she didn't. And, and she, they've got. They got to. men. We're we're a little different from that. We don't mind a little silence, do we? We can ride down the road and not say anything. Be be all right with that. But then we carry on this. We carry on this uh, this uh, running commentary or this running dialogue, and we may talk about something for a little bit, and then we go on down there, and we may talk about something else, and you get out and hit your shot, and we drive a little further, and I get out and go into the woods and try to find my ball. and we, we, But for four hours, we just carry on this running dialogue. It's that same picture with our Lord God, is that we can carry out our day, carrying on a continual dialogue with our Lord and Savior that praying without ceasing that that time where we communicate we share with God our hurts and our hopes and our habits and all those things that all those things that we fail at and all of our wishes and all those disappointments even our disappointments with God listen he's big enough to handle it and we share with him we share with him about our day and then we stop and we listen and we ask him to speak to our hearts and our lives, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he can do that, literally walking around in a running dialogue with Christ. The Bible says pray without ceasing. This is the kind of man who does, this is the kind of man that that does that. The third thing is, uh, according to God's standard, a real man follows God's standards, follows God's standards. God's standards. That's the next, next blank. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, he says, to walk in his ways. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. I love that. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to all, according to what is written in the law of Moses. We keep God's statutes. We follow God's law. We find out what God's word says. And guys, it really isn't that hard. We just do it. We find out what God wants us to do, and we do it. But listen, sometimes, sometimes we don't know what God's statutes are because we've never looked to find out what, what he has to say to us. But everything we need in life is found right here. This is our authority. This is our instruction book. And ignorance is not an excuse. I mean, if, I, if I'm driving from here to Cleveland and I go flying through Splendor at 75 miles an hour, the cop pulls in behind me with his lights on, I pull over, he comes up to me and he says, sir, um, do you know how fast you were going? Well, yeah, I was going 75 miles an hour. Did you know that the speed limit was 55, by the way? Does anyone else have that testimony? Oh, yeah, I see that hand, thank you. And I, and I go, no, I didn't realize it was 55 miles an hour, which it is, by the way, through Splendora. Um, uh, he... He didn't say, oh, well, you know, you just didn't know, so that's, yeah, that's okay. No, no, he's going to write me a ticket because ignorance is no excuse. Ignorance is no excuse. The man of God, the, the real man of God, finds out what God's statutes are and then follows them. Um, how do you know what God's statutes are? There's no easy shortcut here. We just have to get in the word and start reading it, and asking every time we get in the word, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? For many of us, it's like trying to put something together without reading the instructions. No one in here ever does this. Oh, by the way, notice something else in that verse. I love this. Back up for just a second. Look at that last line in that verse. It says, uh, keep my statutes, my command- his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies according to all that written in it that you may succeed in all you do and wherever you turn. He's saying, listen, if you keep God's statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, according to the word, this isn't, a, this isn't a prosperity gospel, name it and claim it, but according to God's word, the promise of his word says, when we do that, he will make us successful and make our way. It's a command with a promise. One that backs that up is Joshua 1.8, which says, listen, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And then he says, then you will be prosperous and successful. Sometimes we sit back and we go, you know what, I don't know why, I just can't get my life together. Listen, get in God's word and find out what he says and then just do it. Get it. Listen, guys, it's just really not that hard. The man of God follows the statutes of God. And finally, the last one is that a real man lives out his heritage. Oh, guys, listen. If there's one, if there's one point I've just got to get across to you today is that, is that real men, real men of God, live out their heritage. Listen to what... Uh, David says to his son, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth and with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Okay, do you realize what he's just saying here? Do you realize what has just happened here? This is absolutely, utterly amazing. David knew that he had an amazing heritage. And that his son had an even more amazing heritage coming for him. And how did he know that? You go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you find what we call the Davidic covenant, where God makes a covenant with David. And he says, David, listen, if you will follow me, if you will live, my, if you will live a life for me, then listen, someone on your, in your line, your heritage will live on actually throughout all eternity. What does that mean? It means that David would be king, and then his son would inherit the kingdom, and then his grandson and his great-grandson, and then through the line of David, through his heritage, the Messiah would come. And when the Messiah came, literally, that heritage would live on for eternity. David stepped back and said, listen, God, really? Really? You, you, through my lineage, you're going to bring about the kingdom of God? I'm And David says, I get it, but I gotta make sure my son gets it. Listen, gentlemen, listen closely. (laughs) We have a heritage, we have a past heritage, we have a present heritage, and we have a future heritage. And we have to pass it on. We have to understand that it cannot stop with us. It can't stop with our generation. David is saying ultimately to Solomon, listen, Solomon, wherever my ceiling is, I want that to be your floor. Wherever I've succeeded, I want you to succeed above what I did. Whatever I was great in, I want you to be greater in. I've prayed that for my son, that my son, wherever my ceiling is, his, wherever my ceiling is, that would be his floor, Listen for every one of us we have to realize there's a, we have a heritage and we can't stop go if you go to the New Testament book of 2 Timothy chapter 2 we find Paul encouraging his young son in the faith Timothy and, this, and this, this, one, this one statement, as Paul's trying to encourage him, Paul says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, the things you have heard me say in the presence of, presence of witnesses, pass on to faithful men who will in turn pass it on to others. It's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the, the image of the races where you have a relay race, so you've, got, you've got the first person and he passes the baton to the second person who passes the baton to the third person who passes the baton to the fourth person. They're all one team. Listen, men, we gotta pass on the baton. For every one of us, we need to make sure we, we, we embed in our sons and our daughters the heritage that we've received. And listen, as Americans, we don't, sometimes we just don't get uh, the, the great price that has been paid for our faith. That great price, people have sacrificed and died to give us what we have, the ability to read the Bible, to worship freely, and to pray publicly. And as Americans, we don't understand that price yet, yet, yet. But if you go to the website called uh, 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 Voice of the Martyrs, you're going to find an interesting t- t- statistic that you won't find on Fox News or CNN because they're not going to tell you about this, that, that in 2016, more people were martyred for their faith, martyred for our faith than ever in history. Listen, man, there's been, there's been a great price paid for us. There's been a great price not just for our salvation, but for our, freedom in, uh, for our freedom to worship and to live the lives that we have. And listen, we can't drop the ball. We can't stop. We must pass on the heritage to our sons and our daughters. King David is on his deathbed. And while he's there, he thinks back of his life. All those highs, all those lows,